Hi, everyone, and welcome to It's Either True or It Isn't, the Bible teaching podcast of Vern Bartlett. Who is Vern Bartlett, you say? Well, for some, Vern was a tenacious soldier who kept his cool under fire. Others knew him as an intrepid explorer who braved the hazards of the Amazon wilderness to bring the gospel to people who came close to killing him several times. To others, he was a serious and dedicated Bible teacher who spent hours every morning poring over the Holy Scriptures to examine his heart and to ensure he was teaching as best he could. For me, he was Grandpa. And in this episode, we start to get into the meat of the book of Hebrews. That's what this season is all about. And in this episode, we get through the first three verses. There is a problem at the end of the recording, and the last few minutes of the sermon uh, are lost to the sands of time, unfortunately. And so we don't get to hear what he says about verse four of chapter one. But the first three verses we do hear, and it's chock full of good, deep teaching that will give you plenty to chew on until we come out with the next episode. What struck me in listening through this sermon was Grandpa's heart for the simple, deep truths of God. And he encourages us to not breeze over these. Just because we hear them a lot, we can have a tendency to just think, yeah, yeah, I already know that, and move on to the next thing. But I encourage you to take the time to really think through these things, to think on what we might think of as the simple truths of God, but they're actually very deep. The deeper we reflect on them, the deeper we see that they go, because God is infinitely wise and infinitely good. So I hope you enjoy this, and I'll talk to you later. Well, this has been a week of interruptions for us. Doctor's appointments and therapy appointments and, and plumbing problems in our house, and our daughter arrived from Manila, so uh, among other things. So uh, it's been a pretty... A pretty busy week. I read a verse the other day that I want to read to you this morning. It isn't associated with Hebrews necessarily, but it's in Isaiah chapter 66. I was looking for something else, and I referred to Isaiah, and I ran across this verse, and I want to just read it before we begin. The first two verses of Isaiah 66 says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. Where is the house that you will build me, and where is the place of my rest? For all these things my hand has made, and all these things exist, says the Lord. In other words, there's, there's nothing that can contain him. He made all things. He can't be contained by any earthly house or tabernacle. But this is what I wanted to call to our attention in the latter part of verse 2. But on this one will I look, on him who is poor and of a contrite spirit and who trembles at my word. You know, anybody can qualify for that, if we will. I like the simplicity of things like that. It, it puts us all in a position where we can do this very thing. But even though we can do it, you know, I sat there and thought, it's not so easy to do it, is it? It's uh, easy to be pushed off center a little bit. But I really appreciate it when something like that comes to my attention and I can sit and think about it a little bit. And uh, well, anyway, didn't really finish all the background material. You probably had enough of that. Uh, I may make a couple or three comments, and then we'll really get started in the book here. I just wanted to say that uh, that the author, he isn't writing just as a theologian. 
or from an academic viewpoint. Uh, he's writing to meet a real need in the hearts and minds of men and women. I believe that's important too. He wants to give light and guidance and wisdom. And he's going to both warn and encourage, and it's going to be very practical what he says. Now, the, the content of what he writes is applicable to the church any time during its history. Uh, the reality of what he's saying has gripped his heart, and that's important for someone doing this, uh, you know, writing as he writes. And, and he writes fervently, and uh, he, he expresses his concern. This is a real thing. He's comforting and exhorting and instructing and warning and inspiring, and he's doing this out of the abundance of his heart to meet a real need that he's aware of. He's not concerned about being politically correct or, or how many of these things he's going to sell in these letters. Uh, he's not uh, uh, cowed or influenced by a tolerant religious system. Uh, he's really speaking reality. And he's speaking it just as he is. And uh, he's, he's going to address a need that has been present, uh, 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 I guess, always in the church. Many commentators remark about this, the tendency to fall away from revealed truth. Uh, to be dull of hearing, uh, to lack spiritual progress, danger of drifting away from truth, uh, the need to walk by faith, and to advance from immaturity to maturity. These things are all addressed in the epistle to the Hebrews, and they're very well addressed. Uh, I suppose some of these Hebrews were probably captive of a legal system in some, to some extent, and probably a slowness or unwillingness to change despite some of the things that they'd heard. And this is not a thing that uh, is <clears throat> altogether in common with us as well. I would assume that a lot of them, uh, or probably a good number of them, didn't really understand the, the provisions of the gospel, what Christ has really done for us. Uh, it took me a good long time to, to get some of these things sort of straightened around in my own mind, <clears throat> some of the things that the Lord had really done for us. And to understand the difference between uh, knowledge and information and real faith and revealed truth. Now, as I said, what the writer says is, is certainly applicable to the church at any time during its existence. Uh, some of the older authors, I don't know if you've heard of Bishop Westcott, of the Westcott and Hort duo, a man highly respected for his scholarship. Uh, he wrote a, a, a very fine commentary over 100 years ago. And he has these words in it. This is the quote from his commentary. He says, The more I study the tendencies of the time in some of the busiest centers of English life, he was from England, he says, The more deeply I feel that the Spirit of God warns us of our most urgent civil and spiritual dangers through the prophecies of Jeremiah and the epistle to the Hebrews. And he says, May our nation and church be enabled to learn the lessons which these books teach while there is still time to use them. And uh, I have to say that England hasn't listened to that very well. They didn't listen to Bishop Westcott, and things are not really very good over there. I think it was Dan Burson. Did any of you get the uh, email that uh, Dan sent around after Roy Hill uh, about the assemblies from 150,000 to 40,000? Uh, what it does with me is it shows me that what some of these men foresaw, they, they saw light. They understood what was coming, and they spoke. But you know something? Not very many people listened to them. They went right on their way. And uh, this is always a, I guess you could say, a danger <clears throat> or a tendency with all of us. And that's why this epistle has meant a lot to me. It addresses some of these uh, 
very things. Usually I say some things about the, the words that are used a lot in Hebrews. I won't take much time with that at all. Like the word better, how many times it's used in Hebrews. And the word great, great salvation, great shepherd of the sheep, great recompense of reward. We won't address too many of those things. There are some other words that really uh, fit in uh, so well to the context of the whole thing here, like the word perfection. And, the, and the, the words related to it, perfected and perfect, used a lot of times in the epistle to the Hebrews. And the word eternal is used a good many times. Eternity and that a good many times in the, in the epistle to the Hebrews. Uh, it, it's shown, uh, it is used so many times to show the permanent and unchanging aspect of the religion that we uh, have adopted or, or, or believed in. Uh, the word heaven and heaven used a lot of times to point out that it's a heavenly religion, not an earthly one as the uh, religion of, of Judaism was. The word better used so many times in Hebrews. Uh, partakers is a word that people don't often consider. Uh, in every case, this, this word is uh, used of, of a definite association or companionship or participation with other Christians or with uh, Christ himself. Uh, uh, Judaism, as you know, was taken up with symbols and types and promises and like that, while this is the, the reality of real partaking. The word having is used quite a few times, having this hope and uh, having boldness and that kind of thing. And then there's the word leaving, let us leave certain things, let us have certain things and let us leave certain things. And you know, the having suggests the, the absolute importance of appropriating what we possess. Uh, the word lest is also used, lest the uh, these realities be neglected and lost, as he's going to talk to us about in Hebrews. So there's a connection between these words. See, the complete realization uh, of the Christian life is, in a sense, seen in the matter of, of perfection, uh, conformed to the image of Christ, isn't it? Spiritual maturity. And it's something which can, we can be actual partakers of right now. It isn't something in the future. It isn't a type. It's useful every moment of the day for us. It's not something to just look forward to. We have much to look forward to, but these are everyday realities. Uh, we can have them right now, it says to have it. And then to watch uh, carefully, he's gonna tell us, lest uh, certain things happen to us that uh, cause us not to do that. Okay, we'll get started in Hebrews. Read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter one. And then we'll say a few things about it. It says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. <clears throat> That's a long and powerful sentence. And when you sit and think about this, it contains some of the most elevated, important information ever given to men. And the world and, and many people just go by right in this book, in this little space here, some of the most important information that's ever been set forth for mankind that God has spoken in a final, decisive way to man through his son. And he's appointed this son the heir of all things. And uh, through his life on earth, what he lived and, and spoke is a revelation of God, it tells us, uh, his attitude towards mankind. 
And God reveals that attitude towards his son. You notice that there's no salutation really or greeting to the saints as in some epistles. He just begins immediately with this great comprehensive statement uh, regarding the fact that God has spoken to his son and that this son is superior to everything and anything and above every name that's named. You know, no other, uh, no other writing except the scripture can say this much in a, in a short space like that. Uh, it reminds me, I think Mark mentioned the other morning uh, of the... Uh, Genesis 1.1, 1, 1. Uh, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's a, the potency and simplicity of that is something, isn't it? Just in one brief sentence of ten words, it sets it not all the scientific theories, the Big Bang theory, all of the things, the books and volumes that have been written in one stroke of the pen. It, it demolishes the whole thing for those that will believe. So just a, a simple statement. And then you know men either believe these simple statements or they don't believe them. So uh, I'm going to do something this evening. Uh, don't get worried if I make a few digressions and take a little time here in the beginning. I can abbreviate real fast in some places. So uh, I want to just say I've never done this in Hebrews before, but uh, when Tim was talking the other morning about uh, who do we say that he is, God, uh, I noted again that this epistle begins with God. That's the first word. Uh, but no attempt is made to argue for his existence, is there? Just like in Genesis, there's no proof offered. There's no argument for the fact that God is and that he controls all things and that he created all things. It's just a statement. Uh, and the Bible assumes that God is. And uh, it describes his attributes and his actions and how he is. It tells who he is and how he is. The, the matter isn't debated. There's no seminars held to refute the critics. Uh, no explanations or proof is offered. Just like that. God created the heavens and the earth, or God is responsible for all of these things. Just simple statements. Like God said to Moses in Exodus 3.14, he says, uh, you tell the Israelites that I am who I am. And, uh, you know, I, I thought a long time and did quite a bit of study to try to get through that and see just what he means by that. But it's a simple statement that, uh, that God is actually kind of difficult to explain. And so as you just tell them that I am sent you. But then the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork, and men either believe this or they don't believe that. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. And uh, he that comes to God has to believe that he is. And it says, by faith, in Hebrews 11:2, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. And, uh, you know, we hear a lot about young people that go to uh, universities and like that and, and have their faith tested and sometimes destroyed. But remember, these things come by faith, not scientific exploration or scientific reasoning. They come by faith. Uh, such an important thing. We either believe these statements or that we don't. Now, the last couple times through Hebrews, <clears throat> I've been impressed with the importance of having a right concept of God. Whether we're studying Hebrews or whatever we're doing, uh, it's so very important to have a right concept. Our life will show, our daily life shows how we really think about God. Regardless of what we might say, or regardless of where we might think we are, how we live daily shows how we really feel, what our concept of God is. Uh, so uh, this portion that Tim spoke about when Jesus came into the region of Caesarea Philippi, asked his disciples, saying, Who do men say that I am, a son of man am? And so they said, John the Baptist and Elijah. But he said to them, Who do you say that I am? I've thought a lot about that this week. Uh, it's a very penetrating question, isn't it? And uh, one that, uh, that, that can really bring us up short and... Well, it got my attention to the point that I spent quite a bit of time 
when I wasn't being interrupted this week, uh, looking at things. I began to look at passages of Scripture that speak of God's greatness and power and attributes and how other men in the Scripture viewed him. And, uh, you know, those kind of things, I feel, are, are of real benefit to me. I believe that this is something that we can all do on our own. Uh, I believe that it's something that can be very profitable to take something that God speaks to us about and find our way in it and spend our time working through it. It exposes us to the Word of God. And that's the only way we're going to have a right balance in life. But a lot of times we have to have something to inspire us to get going. And something like this can do that. And you'd be surprised. I'm sure you've found this to be true. You get started in this and it expands into other areas. And you know something? Before you realize it, you're really interested in this thing. And that you're giving time to it. And you're laying aside other things that you hadn't planned on laying aside and you're doing something that's really interesting. And boy, I tell you, if we can, if we can do that, uh, it, it's really good for us. I thought in uh, Exodus, the 15th chapter, I read what some men uh, spoke. And this will take a little time to do this, but as I said, I can abbreviate real fast in some areas. Uh, when Moses' song here uh, in chapter 15, uh, Moses and the children of Israel, chapter 15 and verse 1, sang this song to the Lord and spoke, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. Uh, in verse 2, the Lord is my strength and my song. Uh, he has become my salvation. He is my God. I will praise him, my father's God, and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war, etc. This was Moses' concept of God. Uh, he says, <clears throat> your right hand, O Lord, in verse 6, has become glorious in power and has dashed the enemy in pieces. But the verse that uh, stood out to me in this uh, portion is verse 11 of Exodus 15. It says, Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? And then he tells the wonders that God did. And then pretty soon you have a song of Miriam uh, along this same line of... Uh, of thinking, these are people whose concept of God was changed as they went through something under God's hand and they saw God work in their lives and do things for them and this is how their concept was enlarged. Uh, I think I spoke one morning a long time ago about Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel 2. I reviewed that again. I don't mind reviewing things like this 15 times or 40 times or whatever. Uh, <clears throat> I think it imprints it better in your mind and in your heart. And she said here in that 1 Samuel 2, uh, she says in verse 2, no one is holy like the Lord, in 1 Samuel 2, 2. Uh, there is none besides you, nor is there any rock like our God. Uh, talk no more very proudly, let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. Uh, says in, in verse 6, the Lord kills and makes alive, he brings down to the grave and brings up, and he makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up, and he raises the poor from the dust. These are attractive things. Uh, that enlarge our concept and our attitude towards God. Then the thing that I really ran across the other morning reading at breakfast time there uh, in Psalm 145. I want to take a little time to read part of this psalm to you. The concept of God that the psalmist had. Uh, many of the psalmists had a concept like this and many of them had been through things under God's hand and this the, their concept of God enlarged their desire and it enlarged their attitude towards God and it changed their life, I'm sure. Uh, this will take just a few minutes, but uh, he says in uh, Psalm 145, <clears throat> he says, uh, I will extol you, O my God, O King, and I will bless your name forever and ever. Every day I will bless you and I will praise your name forever and ever. 
Great is the Lord and greatly to, to be praised, and his greatness is unsearchable. One generation will praise your works to another and will declare your mighty acts. I will meditate on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works. Men shall speak of the might of your awesome acts and will declare your greatness. They will utter the memory of your great goodness and sing of your righteousness. Think of the attractiveness here of this being in verse 8. It says, The Lord is gracious and full of compassion, slow to anger and great in mercy. How attractive that ought to be to the likes of us that need this kind of thing every day. Uh, the Lord is good to all and his tender mercies over all his works. All your works shall praise you, O Lord, and your saints bless you. They shall speak of the glory of your kingdom and talk of your power to make known to the sons of men his mighty acts. And it goes on and on. Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. Verse 14, the Lord upholds all who fall. Uh, look at verses 17 and 18. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and gracious in all his works. He's near to all those that call upon him. And he'll fulfill the desires of those that fear him and on and on and on in this psalm. And you can find this in many other places. But uh, it was a good week for me. I spent quite a bit of time doing this. Other passages I found in Isaiah, you know that famous one in Isaiah 6 where he saw the Lord holy and lifted up. These things can become almost rote to us, you know. But it wasn't to Isaiah. He fell down on his face. This was a big thing to him. And I found that uh, by refreshing my memory and a lot of these things, and I aim to continue doing this as I have time, it's been a, a good thing for me. I spent a lot of hours this week doing this. I have a, a two-volume set written by Stephen Sharnock one of the old, old writers. It's entitled The Attributes of God. It's two volumes about that thick on God's attributes. And uh, while it's heavy reading, I went through parts of it about God's holiness and his power, stimulating thoughts in there. It's better than a lot of the reading that we can do, this kind of thing. It tends to stimulate us, in my opinion, in the right direction. So, uh, you know, if I can take that liberty, I'd like to urge you to do this kind of thing. Run across something that really catches your attention or that the Spirit speaks to you about, Give time to it. Uh, study his attributes and see how some of these characters have really rejoiced in God. Uh, it, has a, it can have a wholesome effect on it. Then I thought we reach out and respond to what we find attractive, don't we? Obvious, the psalmist in Psalm 145, he found God to be very attractive in the spiritual sense. And we find some things attractive, like a beautiful sunset, or a beautiful beach, or a beautiful picture. We go to the art galleries, or a beautiful vacation, or or even people we think can be great, or, or uh, music, that kind of thing. It can be very attractive to us, dress styles, uh, all different kinds of things. And, uh, you know, we spend our money and our time for things that we find to be attractive, don't we? And this world won't lack to supply those things for us. Uh, it's very good at that. But yet, as we know, these things never bring any true satisfaction in themselves. Uh, they don't require faith in their transient, and yet they clamor for our attention. And, uh, you know, there are many who, who find these things, I believe, more attractive than God himself. And God is not always that personal to men. They know some things about him, but they don't know enough about him to be attracted to him, to where they'll lay aside other things and give time to finding out more about God. Uh, when the Lord can bring us to the place where we'll do that, he's made a big uh, he made a big step in our life. A.W. Tozer says that God has lost his wonder and amazement for just so many people. Uh, and so I, this got, see, this got me started on something else. 
this matter of, of wonderful. And Isaiah says to us, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful. And then I looked up a lot of other verses, in the, and Isaiah says, Lord, you are my God, I will exalt you, I will praise your name, for you have done wonderful things. And uh, uh, In many places, the psalmist, different ones, spoke of God's wonderful works. The psalmist in 119 said, your testimonies are wonderful. And uh, they said uh, in Acts 2.11, that we heard them speaking in our tongues the wonderful works of God. And the psalmist in 139, he said, you've searched me and known me, and you know my sitting down and my standing up and everything I think. And he says, he ends up this uh, uh, six verses here, and he says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. He says, I can't attain it. And I believe that if we can expose our soul to this kind of thing for periods of time, and I keep saying this, it can be a, a very great benefit to us. It may change a little bit about who do we say that he is. I really don't know much of any other way that it can happen except exposure to the scriptures. The world doesn't tell us much about it. And we get all kinds of garbled information from different ministries and like that. But uh, this book here will tell us the truth every time. And so uh, I realize I've used some of our valuable time to do this. But uh, it impressed me and I hope that the Lord might uh, encourage us to, to do some of these things from time to time. All right, it says, God who at various times and in <clears throat> various ways. Uh, literally, that means in verse 1, chapter 1, and verse 1, in many parts or portions. In the beginning or in the first stage of revealing to him, uh, himself to men, he didn't speak all at once. Uh, he didn't give a complete revelation of his being and his will. Uh, he did this in many separate revelations, and each one set forth just a little part of the truth. Uh, you've heard of progressive revelation. That may be particularly true in the Old Testament, the creation and the fall and the skins of animals, type of salvation, I suppose, and hints about the seed of the woman and Noah and the, and Noah and the ark and Abraham and the promises and blood sacrifice and the deliverance from Egypt, another type of salvation, and then the sacrificial system. Different parts, it was revealed progressively. But it, it, the truth as a whole doesn't come to light in the Old Testament. It appears fragmentarily. Uh, in successive stages. Uh, one prophet has one part, another prophet has another part. Uh, it was all truth, and, and men of God proclaimed it, but it was only a fragmentary revelation. Uh, in various ways, speaks of the many different ways uh, that these things operated through these men, the different ways in which he spoke to, to the prophets. One way through Moses, one way through Samuel, Another way through David, another way through Elijah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, and many different ones. And then this would include also the, the methods that he used, like dreams and, and visions and inspirations and voices. Uh, little Samuel, God spoke to him, and uh, as uh, Dan was saying this morning, three times. The third time he understood that it was God speaking to him, but apparently, from what I can gather there, a literal voice. Uh, God spoke through angels. Jacob's ladder, angels ascending and descending, and uh, institutions appointed by God, the priesthood, and uh, prophetic utterances and all of these things, but none of these things was in itself a complete or final revelation. It was true revelation, but it was fragmentary. Uh, they, all, they set the stage for a full, final revelation that we're going to read about. So he's already preparing the readers for the truth here that God has now, after all of these fragmentary and preliminary revelations, he's given a final revelation in his son. 
Uh, he's the true substance of what all these fragmentary revelations had to do with. Now, you and I are privileged to live in the dispensation of the full revelation of gospel truth. Does that do anything to you? Make you jump up and down and clap your hands, or like if you'd won the jackpot or something? See, uh, believe it or not, we're indwelt by the Spirit. Uh, that's a pretty big thing. Uh, we have the reality of what all these former revelations just hinted at, all these fragmentary things. Now, Hebrews is going to point out to us that great privilege carries great responsibility. That's going to be emphasized in different places in Hebrews. Now, it says that uh, he spake in time past to the fathers. These were what some commentators call Old Testament worthies. Uh, they were men who were well-known in their generations, respected men who were recognized and respected by their peers. Uh, when he says by the prophets, that, that probably could be intended to cover the whole body of the Hebrew scriptures, the law as well as the prophets. So these men were the spokesmen or the mouthpieces of God. They were men moved by the Spirit, and the words they uttered were the words of God. Now it says in Second Peter 1.21, the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He's referring back to these things. So the words that these men spoke were truth, but no one of them had any, would you say, semblance of a complete revelation. There were many no human speakers, and each one made a contribution uh, to the unfolding of this truth. As we said, progressive revelation. It was the word of God, but it was the word of God leading to a higher revelation all the time, Christ himself. Now, it would seem that this uh, is carefully selected as well to show the Hebrew Christians right from the beginning the inferiority of Christ over everything and anything, anything that had to do with the Jewish system, uh, that it was uh, superior to that and any other thing that, that might have been. And uh, another thing is that these prophets, they didn't, uh, many of them, didn't understand adequately what they were talking about. Uh, it says in 1 Peter 1, doesn't it, 10 through 12, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come to you. Speaking of us, searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ was in them, which was in them to signify when it testified beforehand of the suffering of Christ and the glory that would follow unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves, but unto us they did minister the things which, which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel unto you, and with the Holy Spirit sent down from heaven, which things the angels desire to look into. However interested we might be, the angels thought this was a big deal, this kind of thing. And I find those things kind of stimulate me a little bit. If angels thought this was a big deal, maybe I need to get back to the drawing board and get a little better idea of what uh, we have tucked away in, in our breast here. So uh, another thing is, and I've probably said this in Joshua or Judges or some of the others, that men haven't always appreciated the words of truth spoken by prophets, have they? Uh, most people eventually rejected the warnings of prophets. And so these men had a tough road sometimes. Uh, many were mistreated, and we probably talked a little bit about Jeremiah in the pit and nearly starved to death and accused of treason and all of these things. Uh, they labored in faith. Uh, many of them didn't see the results that they hoped for. That was a disappointment in uh, 1 Kings 18 when Elijah performed this great miracle and they poured water on the sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the fire came down from heaven and, and consumed that whole thing. And you know, it didn't change anybody really. And so he ran on ahead to the uh, city there 
I'm sure to see if any of Israel had changed their mind and would turn back to God, and apparently it hit him so hard that he went out and said he'd rather die. So it was a tough road for these fellows. And uh, what was it? Uh, I think Vance Havner says that we lack for prophets today. Uh, you know, men speak things sometimes that are unpopular. He said that Scripture is a non-profit, P-R-O-P-H-E-T, a non-profit organization. Uh, so he says we have to be careful for that. Because uh, when we speak truth, sometimes uh, we don't win popularity contests. Now, in regard to the prophets and the truth that they, uh, that they spoke and the treatment that they received, another thing that stood out to me is that the Jews, and especially the, the Pharisees, they were really deluded in themselves about matters like this. Uh, Jesus spoke to them in Matthew 23, along about uh, chapters 29 through 31. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! because you build the tombs of the prophets and adorn the monuments of the righteous and say, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. They said, we would have never done anything like that. Therefore, your witnesses against yourselves that you are the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Fill up then the measure of your father's guilt. See, these fellows were just as guilty as their fathers before them, wouldn't they? When it came to rejecting truth and light, see, they had the same hardened attitude as their fathers. They just didn't realize it. Their actions proved this, didn't it? See, Christ, the greatest of all prophets, greater than any prophet, the awaited Messiah, uh, the Son of God, the fulfillment of all that these prophets had spoken stood right in front of them. And they tried to they questioned him. They tried to trick him. They tried to trap him in his own words. They disbelieved his message, and they disbelieved what he said about them. And they finally killed him. They did the same thing that they said they would have never done. Had they faced the other prophets, they did exactly the same thing, self-deception. That proves Jeremiah 17, 9, doesn't it? Heart is deceitful above all things. Men don't always know their own hearts. So, see, they couldn't apply truth to their lives. They didn't understand their true condition. And uh, the majority of the Jews rejected that truth that they claimed so fondly to seek after. They rejected that very truth. So he says in uh, verse 2, as in these last days, uh, the only time that this exact phrase, I believe, is used is right here in Hebrews. It means towards the conclusion, I would think, of the Jewish dispensation, dispensation of the law, when that age was changing into this new age, the new and living way, as the, as the writer speaks of in Hebrews. But it says, in these last days has spoken unto us by his Son. Uh, and these words are, are used to present the Son as the exact counterpart and representative of God. He, he's the, the, the duplicate of God, if you could say such a thing. And, and it isn't here uh, just what Jesus said, but who he is. Uh, not just that he speaks, but the, the position that he speaks from. He's God's Son who reveal, reveals the Father. Uh, some uh, have put it this way, that it's a son revelation. The grammatical uh, construction does say that this is a son revelation, not the son, but a son revelation. See, see the, the, the former revelation or truth was given through a definite class of people, the prophets. But the new revelation is given through one who, as a son, is distinguished from any prophet and far above any prophet. He belongs to another category entirely. So the difference in the means of revelation is between created beings, prophets, and their creator. Right away he's going to establish a big difference between all of these things and the sufficiency of Christ. So 
uh, one that would, would be standing in relation uh, uh, to God as a son, he can make a revelation that would be perfect and complete in its character. And uh, I hope this thought will go through our minds that we're privileged to, to be in this time, that, that we have this full and complete and final revelation. And he implies here also that the son is the last speaker, uh, that there isn't going to be any more speakers like this after him. And how superior this is to the former fragmentary revelation made by the prophets to the fathers. And as I keep saying, we have this revelation. God has preserved it for us in the scripture. But it's been costly. I look at the World Magazine. It's, uh, I don't agree necessarily with some of the doctrinal things that they say, but they have some pretty observing things. And in the last two, it's had something like one-way traffic, uh, how institutions and churches go down. And it has a number of things. Uh, another article like this just came out. It says, institutions liberalize because people forget the struggle. They take their heritage for granted, thinking it's their due rather than the product of a deadly struggle. Uh, had some people uh, in my Hebrews class over there in England from the church in China, and they were able to get a visa, and they came out, and they're learning the word of God so that they can go back and teach their people. And they speak reasonably good English, and I talk quite a bit to the man, and you'd be surprised at some of the things people go through over there. They have to hide. If they gather more than a certain number, they can get into real big trouble. But you know what's happening on the other hand? The church is growing by leaps and bounds. There's a struggle. See, I think that Christianity maybe wasn't meant to be a very comfortable religion. Uh, it, it's a religion of struggle. And men have died all down through the ages and been martyred, and we have books written about that kind of thing. Uh, people forget that it's the product of a deadly struggle, this thing that's been preserved for us. And uh, it can help, you know, to re be reminded of these things, can help us to realize that this is a great thing God has done for us, and it has cost, <coughs> me, cost men a, a very lot to preserve that for us. Well, I think I'll go quickly over some of these things that uh, God has spoken unto us by his son. One reason I want to say just a few words is that uh, down through the times when uh, I've had classes, sometimes people would say, or, or be maybe in a church or something, people would say, well, if I just knew what God wanted me to do, I'd, I'd just have trouble hearing God speak to me. Well, you can't turn very many pages before you find out that he's had quite a bit to say. Uh, the problem is that some of it doesn't fit into our lifestyle. Uh, and, you know, some of my favorite verses, Romans 12, 1 and 2, verses that really made a change in my life. Uh, By the mercies of God, present your bodies a living sacrifice, acceptable unto God. This is our reasonable service. He talks about seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Uh, the portion there in, in Colossians 3, 1 through 5, if you've been risen with Christ or raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ sits on the right hand of God. These are really powerful things. And one of the things that the Lord brings me up short about sometimes is what I've been saying is that they become commonplace to us. We know them. And they've, they've lost sometimes that sharp, convicting effect that it's supposed to have upon our life when we read it. And I find in my case that reviewing it over and over, it's a little easier maybe for me to be brought back to some measure of reality in these things that I tend to take for granted. He says that, for you, are, you died and your life was hidden with Christ in God. That's quite a speaking to us. He says, when Christ who is our life will appear, then you will also appear with him in glory. Big thing. The, the world system can't offer anything like this. And all due respect to Mr. Gates, with all these billions, he can't buy one of these things. 
He can't buy one iota of all of these things that you and I have, not for free. But they were free to us when we believed. But it's been a costly thing for many. So, well, we'll skip over some of these things as I promised to do. It says that he's appointed uh, him heir of all things. So, <clears throat> see, as the creator of all things and the heir of all things, uh, and, the, and the, it says that, the, that, that my thought was that he knows the purpose and existence of everything. He's above everything. He created all things. Everything was made by him. See, he knows the end purpose of everything. Uh, Christ knows the moral, uh, what say, the moral aim of the creation. He knows where this thing is headed. In fact, in, in a very real sense, he is the moral aim of the creation, isn't he? Even though men are, are not prone to acknowledge that all things exist for him, it says. Now, in this position, as the creator and heir of all things, he can reveal God's thoughts and attitudes about everything. Anybody interested? Lots of things in the CBD magazine that make big promises. You'll, you'll remember me for reminding you of this all the time. Uh, big promises. But here's one who, who knows everything, and he's even put it in writing for us here, uh, if we'll take time with it. Uh, so th that's the question. Interested. Will we seek after this uh, and desire it? So who would be better qualified to speak than one who created and orders the whole creation. Who, boy, that's something. Uh, see, he'd be the ultimate and perfect revelation he could give that on the basis of perfect knowledge. Uh, we have a lot of famous writers, and uh, I know I get to, sometimes these guys say something that are really stimulating, but here's somebody who's the perfect spokesman. Uh, a lot of the things that people say I have to examine. I'll take time and I look at it and I think about this and I let it rest a couple of months and I come back and think about it again. I don't have to do that with this book. Uh, I know that what it tells me, that I can count on that right now, that that's really the truth. And even though if it may not seem like it at the time. And another thing I thought was, in this world we live in, that, uh, you know, if we think somewhat seriously, that Christ would surely have a perfect sense of values, wouldn't he? And then my thought was, well, what did he live for? Uh, what kind of a value system did he urge on people when he spoke? Or set before people in his teaching? And... Uh, I'm reminded of one of my famous, favorite verses in Proverbs in this thing of value system. Sometimes I go to Proverbs if I feel that my value system needs another adjustment, and it needs plenty of those. Uh, Proverbs 16:32: He who is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules his spirit than he that takes the city. The world system won't buy that. Uh, some of our famous athletes and like that uh, don't do a very jo good job of some of these things. They may make millions of dollars. But see, here's a value system. This is what just levels everything. Uh, Proverbs 3.13, along in those verses there, another thing that has really uh, meant a lot to me, it says, happy is the man who finds wisdom, that is, wisdom that relates to God, and the man who gains understanding. For her proceeds, the proceeds of wisdom, are better than the profits of silver, and her gain than fine gold. All these advertisements in the magazines now, buy gold. Gold's going to go up to what? I forget what it is. I know that I see it on the back covers of a lot of different things. But uh, this is what people are looking for. But he says the proceeds are better than the pro profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. And listen to this in verse 15. And all the things you may desire cannot compare with her. Now that's hard to sell. That's hard to sell to believers sometimes. 
in the reality of it, that all the things that we may desire can't be compared with the wisdom that comes from God that's written on these pages. Uh, it can do so many things that, that nothing else can do. And, uh, you know, when you think of the, of the <clears throat> attitude of Christ, when he says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, being in the form of God, considered it uh, not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He became a servant. He was found in the appearance of a man, but he humbled himself. And he became obedient to death. These are value systems that the Lord set in his word for us, and we have to find our way in that. And God will lead us in certain pathways if we'll, if we'll follow him, if we'll be willing to submit, he'll lead us into things that can be a very meaningful blessing to us. Verse 3, it says, Who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That's a powerful sentence. These two things are, I've spent a lot of time on. They're not so easy to explain, at least in my estimation, what it means by the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. Uh, I have a little summary just at the end as to what it's supposed to express, but that they only occur here in the New Testament as far as I know. Uh, it, it seems to indicate the brightness of his glory, uh, seems to indicate the, the splendor or glory that, uh, that uh, surrounds or accompanies God's presence. It's, it's the true glory that radiates from God's person. There's a lot of different glories, and we think that one thing is a glory and another thing is a glory, but the, the true glory is that which radiates from God himself. See, when Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the elders of Israel, when they saw the glory of God, it was spectacular, but it was a glory that men could bear to, to hear. It's, it's to see. It says in Exodus 24:17, the sight of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the top of the mountain in the eyes of the children of Israel. Now, that consuming fire means a roaring, rolling, billowing flame of fire. They saw that, and they saw other things as well that we don't have time to describe, but uh, this was a certain glory of God that men can see and survive. Uh, after, or when the Ark of the Covenant was brought into Solomon's temple, it says in 1 Kings 8, uh, 10 and 11, came to pass when the priest came out of the holy place that the cloud filled the house of the Lord uh, so that the priest couldn't stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And Ezekiel uh, 128, he says, as the appearance of the bow that is in the cloud in the day of rain, so was the appearance of the brightness round about uh, which was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of God. And while I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice that spoke. And then he says in chapter 8, he says, Behold, the glory of God of Israel was there according to the vision I saw there in, verse, uh, <clears throat> in chapter 1. Remember that the shepherds at Christ's birth, they, they saw the glory of the Lord, or it was round about them, shone round about them, and they fell on their face as well and were terribly afraid. Oh, there's many... Uh, Many verses, as you know, that talk about this. It says, The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. See, men have seen this aspect of God's glory. Uh, but the true glory in itself that, that surrounds God's face is still unapproachable as far as mortal man is concerned. Mortal man, people like you and me in our, in our bodies, even though we're saved, we can't witness this kind of glory and live. It says in John 1.18, no man has seen God at any time. In other words, this direct outgoing radiance, you might say. But the only begotten Son who's in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. So there is something about Christ's life as he lived it out and as men saw him that declared a glory perhaps that they were not able to describe. 
uh, which is what he's talking about here. Uh, well, 